0: And if you have a Bible with you, turn to Psalm 32. If you don't have a Bible, there are some black Bibles around the banisters there. You can pick one of those up. Psalm 32. Psalm, the book of Psalms, is in the middle of the Bible. And today I want to talk to you about the blessedness of forgiveness. The blessedness of forgiveness. What comes to mind when I say the blessedness of forgiveness? Do you think first about forgiving others? that there's a blessedness about that, whatever that means, blessed? What do you think about when you hear blessedness? If something like a medieval painting comes to mind, you'll think of a saint with clasped hands, that mysterious light emanating from behind their hair, that slight smile, which for some reason to me looks like it's a little smug. It's a little bit like, yeah, I am better than you. That gentle self-confidence, perhaps because they've been so meek and so forgiving. Or maybe you think blessedness just means blessings, material blessings. And those who are good at forgiving, like God is, then they get blessed by God and things go well and they have what they need. Well, Psalm 32 talks about the blessedness of forgiveness but not in any of those ways. In Psalm 32, the forgiveness isn't something we grant to others. It's forgiveness we get from God. And that's where all forgiveness must start. Good forgivers are those who know well their own need for forgiveness. Christianity, we could say, is first and foremost, most fundamentally, about being forgiven. Radically forgiving others, like Jesus did, comes as an outflow from that, from being happily humbled by the extent of our own forgiveness. Psalm 32, yes, talks about blessedness, but it isn't a vague, ethereal sense of blessedness, whatever it means. It's surely not about being rich with material blessings. The blessedness of Psalm 32 is even richer than that. It's impossible to buy this kind of blessedness. It's the furthest thing from a smug self-confidence that some medieval paintings of saints might portray. Psalm 32 speaks of a blessing that's nothing short of true happiness, of utter exuberance, of free and happy joy. It is not what we think of when we hear that English word blessed, the Hebrew word blessed. Behind it, and later in the New Testament, the Greek word that's often translated blessed is not being blessed, whatever that means, but being happy, truly happy, utterly exuberant. It leads, ultimately in this psalm, to shouts of joy. So let's turn to Psalm 32 and read this great psalm together, Uh, perhaps the best forgiveness psalm that we have in this big book, the Psalter. It says at the beginning, a maskil of David. Maskil is just a, a song of instruction. It says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Your strength, my strength rather, was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and I didn't cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. God says, I will instruct you, teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or else it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But steadfast love surrounds those who trust in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is God's word. Well, some passages sort of fall off the bone, as some preachers say. No small part of a preacher's sermon preparation to deliver a message is to come up with some kind of outline. So you notice in the back of your bulletin there's an outline with some fill-in-the-blanks there. And some passages are hard to outline, and some are rather easy. This is a rather easy one. It falls off the bone, you could say. I think five chunks of meat fall off the Psalm 32 bone. The first is this, the freeness of final forgiveness. Verses 1 and 2 talk about the freeness of final forgiveness. Forgiveness. These verses are like a thesis statement for the rest of the psalm. They give the summary up front, like many psalms do. It gives us something of the conclusion right at the front. And then what it will do after verse two, we'll back up. It'll back up and then take a run at that theme of forgiveness. So we'll do the same thing. We'll make some general observations about verses one and two and then sort of zoom out. The lens and to see, uh, zoom out the lens and see how we get that blessed freeness from forgiveness. Forgiveness assumes the reality of this thing called sin. It's mentioned three times, this thing called sin, in those first two verses. But just the concept, the word forgiveness assumes that something's wrong, that we've done something wrong that needs fixing. And this is all over the Bible, this thing called sin. Jeremiah 17 tells us where it comes from it's not external it's not just in culture it's not out there influencing us wrongly it's in here Jeremiah 17:9 says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it the depths of our sin well are unknown sin is by nature deceiving in Romans 3 the Apostle Paul, quoting the Old Testament, says, None is righteous, no not one. No one understands even. No one seeks for God. They they say they do. They pretend to, but they don't really. All have turned aside by nature. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Not by nature. Not as we're born. So no surprise that David, the same David who wrote Psalm 32, wrote in Psalm 51 that he was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin, his mother conceived him. That doesn't mean it was an illegitimate pregnancy. Nothing like that. It just means, well, every mother conceives a son or a daughter with sin being passed down. David was no exception. His mom, for all we know, a great godly lady. She still passed down sin, and David was brought forth in iniquity. I said there are three words for sin in Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. Notice those three different words. The first in verse 1 being transgression. It means to go against. It means to go away, to go astray, to depart from God's ways, both in life as a whole and in specific actions or thoughts. Verse 1, David also calls it sin, the most common word for this problem that's universal. You know the word sin, but you might not know literally what it means. It means to fall short of the mark. God has given us a mark. He has made his will known to us. It says in Scripture that he's even written a law on our heart, so that even apart from the Bible, we know some basics about right and wrong, and we know that we're in trouble. We fall short of that mark, and we f- certainly fall short of the mark of what He prescribes for us in His Word. It'd be like all of us taking a running leap off the edge of California trying to land on Hawaii. Some would jump further than others, but all of us would miss the mark. All of us would fall short of that mark. That's sin. And then David in verse 2 uses that word iniquity. You might not be familiar with that word. It means twisted or crooked. You see, sin isn't just outright rebellion against God's ways. It is that, but it's often taking something that's good and twisting it in a broken, wrong, crooked way. It's taking something God has made and using it not the way he's made it. Not the way... He's given us to use it iniquity three different words and I think David uses three different words here to show us the pervasiveness of sin to show us that sin has many different faces all of us do sin but we always don't do it the same way right this person does more of that and this person does more of that some sins are less or more culturally acceptable. Forgiveness from God, like Psalm 32 is talking about, assumes that sin is not only there, but that it's against God. He has to give the forgiveness. David said in Psalm 51, Against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, O Lord. This is David praying sometime after he repented for, well, about a year and a half season of rebellion against God. It started with the sin with Bathsheba, taking another man's wife as his own. He got her pregnant. Then to hide the sin of her pregnancy, David ultimately had her husband murdered, put on the front line in battle so that he would be taken out. And so everyone would assume the child was not David's, but the rightful father. In a sense, David had sinned against everybody, against this country, against the army, against this woman Bathsheba. And yet he says in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned, O Lord. Why? Well, because even though he has sinned against other people here, only God is the one who commands, and really only God is the one who is finally and ultimately sinned against. There's really something annoying about someone who says, I forgive you, and you didn't do anything wrong. Can you imagine being in a mall, and a stranger walks up to you, you don't know him, and they just say, I forgive you. You think, well, that's nice, but what what happened? What are you talking about? I didn't do anything. It's crazy. But if God offers forgiveness, it assumes that we've done something wrong, and that it's against him, and it assumes that only he can forgive it it also assumes that there's nothing we can do to dig our way out of it. Jeremiah 13, he asks, Can the Ethiopian change the color of his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? Then how can you, who are accustomed to evil, do good? You're not just going to turn this thing around. You're not going to start batting a thousand. Psalm 130 David says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, if you should keep track, who can stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Forgiveness. Forgiveness with you. It's not our own doing. He must simply forgive it. So, by its nature, forgiveness cannot be earned. And the kind of forgiveness David is talking about is final forgiveness, not oops and then forgiven, and then oops and then forgiven but more of this umbrella forgiveness. And that's blessed, he says. That's, that's happy. Happy news. That's freeing joy. That's extraordinary exuberance. The blessedness of this forgiveness means that this is the most important thing in the world. That our sins are dealt with by God. Jesus said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? Can you imagine gaining the whole world, whatever that would look like? That's not the blessed life. There are higher suicide rates among the wealthy than the poor. So John Calvin, the great reformer, said of this passage, Psalm 32, David here teaches us that the happiness of men consists only in the forgiveness of sins for nothing can be more terrible than to have God for our enemy nor can he be gracious to us in any other way than by pardoning our transgressions. But at the end of verse 2 there's this ominous no deceit. He must have no deceit in his spirit to get this free and happy forgiveness. What's that mean? No deceit? Well, It'll be clear as we move through, but the first hint about that is right in the next two verses. The next two verses show us the opposite of no deceit. They show us plenty of deceit. So the second thing, the sorrow of sin and silence. There is sorrow for sin and silence. Verse 3, when I kept silent about my sin, David says, my bones wasted away. I was groaning all day long. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up like I was a raisin in the hot summer sun. We all have sin, and we all know guilt, though, again, admittedly, in varying degrees and in different ways. And by nature, we all suppress the sense of our guilt. Again, though, in varying degrees and in varying ways, we suppress A final reckoning. The reality that one day there will be a judgment to come. We don't like the light. It was said of Jesus' coming that men fled because he was light. And light came into the world and people love darkness rather than light. They love darkness rather than light because they don't want their deeds to be exposed. So, by nature... Every one of us are born into this world professionals. We get better all the time, apart from God's grace, professionals at ignoring our sin, denying our sin, reinterpreting our sin, covering up our sin, minimizing our sin. And we're also professionals, ironically, at seeing others' faults with 2020 vision. Which further confirms the problem, doesn't it? Have you ever noticed how you think that the things that you're naturally good at are the most important things in the world? Oh, I don't mean certain sports. I mean morally, right? Some people tend to, to be pretty good with the tongue. And this person over here is really loose with the tongue. They, they gossip and they tear down with their words. And And this person over here doesn't struggle with pride as much as this person does struggle with pride. We all have this bent. Some things are a little bit easier for us, even at the age of five. No surprise that even as a Christian at age 55, we're still naturally better at doing some things than others. Have you ever noticed how you think that those things are the most important things and how you tend to notice with such clarity when others don't do those things? They don't ask for forgiveness quite as quickly as you do, quite as humbly as you do. And conversely, we tend to minimize those things that are ongoing struggles for us. Well, David's miserable about that reality. He shares a page from his journal when he says in verse 3 and verse 4, his bones were wasting away for being silent about his sins. He doesn't mean Literally. He means emotionally. He means spiritually. He means internally. It feels like his bones are eating themselves up. He feels like he's going around groaning all day. It's symbolic. It's hyperbole. It's poetic language. It's poetic language that he says God's hand was heavy upon him night and day. And he felt like he was dried up in the sun. It's poetic and symbolic, but that doesn't mean it's any less real or any less painful. In fact, we use poetic language precisely when we can't find normal words to describe how either glorious something is or how horrible something is. David feels as though he's crushed, feels as though he's being eaten from the inside out because of guilt. Now, psychologists want to jump in right here and say, Oh, David, no. Just let it go. Come on. Think bigger thoughts of yourself. You list your ten best things, David, and I want you to look at that list every day. No. David's right here. He's right to know his sin. He's right to deal with guilt. The only way we really deal with guilt is by dealing with it head on. So God is good to bring misery to our sin. God is good to make it tough on us when we're suppressing our sin and not talking to him about our sin. If you don't ever feel like David, if verses 3 and 4 have never felt like your experience, don't be comforted. Be all the more alarmed. What it means is, you've, what it means is that you've gotten pretty good at building up a callus and pretty good at tuning him out. You're pretty used to his hand pressing heavy upon you and pretending that you're light and free. That's the sorrow of sin and silence, and David knew it. But there's a turn in verse 5. The third thing, the key of confident confession. The third thing that falls off the Psalm 32 bone is the key of confident confession. Confession. I acknowledged my sin to you. I didn't cover my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. In light of the nature of sin, that it's deceptive. In light of the nature of sin, that it wants to be covered, that it doesn't like the light, that it gets minimized and justified constantly. It's amazing. No, it's miraculous that anyone would ever confess it so openly to the Lord. Can you imagine confessing it to just any person? I mean, your deepest, darkest secrets? What if that person knew all of them? And that person knew all of them? Even someone you trust, can you trust them with your darkest thoughts? No, right? We all know that. We all keep things, hide things, minimize things. We don't want to talk about certain things, even in our most honest times. How much more is it a scary thought to think of being honest and completely honest and opening the cupboard wide for every moth to fly out with God, who's the final judge? Remember in verses 1 and 2, David used three different words for sin. Well, now he uses three different words for confession. Look at verse 5. He acknowledges his sin to the Lord. He doesn't cover up his iniquity. He says, I will confess my transgressions. To confess means literally to agree. It means to agree with God about what sin is and what we've done. And here, again, David uses all three words for sin just like he did Back in verse 1 and 2, he repeats them. He doesn't just say, my sin. He's already dealt with it three times before. One's only necessary in verse 5, but no, he gives us all three words, sin, iniquity, and transgressions, because he keeps calling it what it is. He's not holding anything back. He's not minimizing it a a bit. And that's what he means in verse 2 when he says, in whose spirit there's no deceit. There's no lying. There's no twisting. There's no hiding. You're not being deceptive with God as if we could be. How wonderful that in that very same sentence, David says, and you forgave my iniquity. Not a new sentence. It's almost as soon as the words of confession get off his lips, he feels and knows God's forgiveness in total. But the fork in the road, as far as we're concerned, humanly speaking, the fork in the road is at confession. Confession, it's ironic. If you cover up your sin with God until you die, in the end, he will expose your sin and treat you accordingly. The Bible says it in so many places. Yet, if you uncover your sin to him now, he will cover it. Isn't that amazing? Sin is only covered when it is first uncovered. It doesn't seem like that's going to be the right path. It seems like this is going to be the hard and hurtful path. But it's the path of healing. Three different words for sin. Three different ways to describe confession. And hence, no surprise that David uses three different phrases for God's forgiveness. It was back in verses 1 and 2. Verse 1, he said, transgression forgiven, lifted off, literally, removed, pulled away. He talks about sin being covered. This pointed back to that Old Testament reality of the sacrificial system. Remember, once a year there was the Day of Atonement and a sacrifice was made and blood was poured out on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. What was inside the Ark of the Covenant? Well, three things were, but one of them were the broken tablets of the Ten Commandments. They symbolized Israel's breaking of God's commands. Those are put in the box of God's presence, the Ark of the Covenant. And then blood was covered over top, signaling a covering of their law breaking. Sin covered. And no iniquity counted against me, he says. Verse 2, counts no iniquity. He doesn't count it. You know, usually in sports, if it doesn't count, it's a bad thing, right? A shot, half-court at the buzzer. He got it off. It's in. And then they look at the tape and they say, ah, it was a little late. The, the clock hit zero before he got it off. It doesn't count, right? Or the field goal doesn't count because there was a penalty on the play. And sports is not a good thing for it not to count, but boy, when we're talking about our sin, it doesn't count. It doesn't count. He doesn't count it. The Bible has a lot of ways of speaking of this forgiveness or salvation. Let me give you several verses that give us different word pictures to describe what we need. Psalm 51, David says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. It's like getting washed or cleaned. Verse 7 of that same psalm, he says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Two verses later of the same psalm, he says, Hide your face from my sins. Don't look, over, look, don't look at them. then another word picture. Blot out all my iniquities. Get out the whiteout, God. Remember whiteout? Anyone? <laughs> psalm 103. It says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he moved our transgressions from us. Now, we're increasingly a global society, you know, because of the Internet and because of economic trade and all that. And so we these days do care what's going on on the other side of the globe. Kind of. I mean, we don't really care about that weird story. or We only care about the things that affect us. But imagine David's time where there's no Internet, right? There's no telegraph even. They don't care what's going on on the other side of the world. And God put his sins on the other side, as it were, as the east is from the west. That's how far apart your sins are. He says in Isaiah 1, God says to us, come now, let's reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. Or Isaiah 43, I am him who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And one more, Micah 7, 19. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot like a cigarette butt. Put it under his foot and wiggle his shoe, and there it is. It's gone. He'll cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Amazing that they still haven't found the deepest parts or been to the deepest parts of the sea. David didn't know that when he wrote it. Shows us how amazing it is now that we know there are very, very deep parts of the sea. It's like God put our sins there. That's the key. Confident confession how does he do this? How does he get rid of our sins like this? Does he, just, does he have some kind of like angelic fairy dust and he blows it on them and they go away? Or did he really put them in the bottom of the ocean? No. We need to talk about how. That's the fourth thing. It's not right in Psalm 32, but it kind of begs the question. The question being the source of this staggering salvation. What's the source of this staggering salvation? Well, for that, we really need to go to the New Testament. Not that the Old Testament doesn't give us any answers about how God forgives, but the New Testament gives us a whole lot more of a clear picture. Because God's plan has been to reveal himself progressively, we say. He hasn't revealed himself all at once. He gives us bit by bit, and so this story moves from some general things to more specific things. It gets less information to more information, so... Look to Psalm I'm sorry look to Romans 3 with me. Would you turn there? I think it's important it's important to understand how God can be this merciful if he's also just. I mean can God really forgive and still be good? Can he be just? We wouldn't allow a local judge to keep letting the guilty go free. Can you imagine being in a courtroom, seeing the family who's just lost a child to gunfire? And the man who's accused is convicted, and the judge just says, <laughs> I'm in a good mood today. You can go. Get out of here. Clunk. My family is rightly outraged, right? Yeah, that judge is soon gone if he does that more than once. In Romans 3, we get an idea of how God can be, it says, just and the justifier. We'll start in verse 23. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but they're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus whom God put forth as a propitiation oh thick, rich theological word it means atonement, covering he's the sacrifice that covered God put forth his own son Jesus as a sacrificial covering for sins by his blood to be received by faith why? why did God do that? It was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance for thousands of years before, he'd been passing over the former sins, the sins of people like David, who knew God's forgiveness. But there wasn't this payment made yet. It was to show that God was righteous so that he might be, it says in verse 26, just And the justifier, the righteous maker of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting then? We got a right to brag, Paul says? No, that's excluded. How does this happen? By some kind of law? Is it a law of working? No, it's by a law of faith. We believe it. For we hold that one is justified or declared righteous by faith apart from works of the law. This idea of being justified is similar to what Psalm 32 said about being counted, not having our sins counted against us. It's an accounting term, it hinted at a ledger, a financial record of debts and credits. Of course, our ledger of morality is nothing but debts. Even our best of righteous acts are as filthy rags. But there is hope. God shows his righteousness in a substitute. Now look at chapter 4 of Romans. Here, Paul quotes from Psalm 32, our psalm. He quotes in verse 7 and 8, our psalm. But let's start in verse 2 and see how he ramps up to quote that psalm. He says, For if Abraham was justified by works, declared righteous by works, he's got something to brag about. But not before God. For what does the scripture say? It says, Abraham believed God and that was counted to him as righteous. He just trusted God. And he had credit. Now, to the one who works, Paul says in verse 4, his wages aren't counted as a gift, but as it's due. In other words, when you get your paycheck from your job, that's not grace, that's not a gift, that's what you've earned, you deserve it. But to the one who does not work, does not trust in his work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteous. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes our psalm. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That's what David meant. He just didn't know it yet. The Savior had not come. Because of the Savior, we can be declared righteous, even though we're not Paul said God declares righteous the ungodly. Now, that would be wrong on a pure human judicial system without a substitute. But the Bible talks about Jesus being our substitute. It's like he exchanged ledgers with us. Your bank account, again, was in the red, infinity. So was mine. But his was in the black. Black is good in this scenario, remind you. His was in the black infinity. He was perfectly righteous. And through faith, if we believe and trust this, our sin goes to him and he bore it on the cross. He paid the punishment for our sins. And there's another exchange. We get his righteousness and the Father treats us as though we did everything he did just right. What a gift. That is grace not worked for not earned for simply received it's in christ alone it's by grace alone it's through faith alone and because of that it's to the glory of god alone not to our not to our glory so to come to him you must simply believe what i just said you must trust it you must receive it you must rest in it you must call out to him and ask him for it it's that Simple. Do you know that blessed forgiveness? Verse 6, back to Psalm 32, verse, verse 6 says, Go to him while he may be found. There's an expiration date on this offer. We don't know when it is. It's either when you die or when Jesus comes back. But don't wait. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Guess what? He is near right now. In the preaching of his word, as his word is hitting your ears, he is near. Seek him while he may be found. This last thing is what we might call the results of real reconciliation. Verses 6 through 11, we'll quickly run through the second half, but notice the therefore in verse 6, which tells us that there's some implications or results that are about to follow. The first result that comes from being right with God because of this amazing, freeing forgiveness is prayer and protection. Prayer and protection, verses 6 and 7. Let everyone who's godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Even when waters are rushing in, they, they won't reach you. David says, you're my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts or songs of deliverance. He tells us that God's people pray. It's fundamental. God's people pray. If we can trust him with our souls, then we can trust him with our lives. We can trust him with tomorrow. And sometimes he holds back the waters of trouble when we ask and it doesn't even touch us. And sometimes he's a hiding place or a shelter in the midst of a storm around us. And sometimes he simply gives us songs of deliverance to sing while we wait for him to bring his promises to their final fulfillment. Sometimes he just gives us songs to sing. Could there be a better example of that than African Americans here in our country During the slave trade, and they had those great Negro spirituals, great songs of deliverance, so many on heaven. Sometimes the Lord just gives us songs of deliverance. But pray and trust his protection and trust the protection he gives as he gives it. Real reconciliation also, secondly, results in a prescribed path. A prescribed path. He says in verse 8, I'll instruct you. God saying through David, I'll teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. In other words, God doesn't merely forgive and then leave us to ourselves to run away giggling and doing whatever we want, especially more sin. No, he's restoring us to himself. He's restoring us to relationship. We were first created in his image, to image forth to the world and back to him what he's like and in sin that image is broken twisted corrupted turned on its head but he not only plans to forgive but he also plans to restore he tends to put he intends to put humpty dumpty back together again slowly but surely so david says in verse 9 don't be like a horse Or a mule? Just begging for the sermon title, Don't Be a Mule. If I was more gutsy, I would have called it that, and and, and I wouldn't have called it Mule. That (laughs) could have been a provocative title, right? But I didn't. He says, don't be like a horse or a mule. They... Horses might be smart in some ways. Maybe they can count to 10 by stomping their hoof, but Mr. Ed wasn't real. You can't really counsel a horse. They're led by a bit in the mouth, a bit in bridle. The bridle's the thing that comes out of the bit, the bit's in the mouth. And so you, you pull left, they turn left. I think. Is that right? I've been on a horse before, but it's been a couple of decades. Uh, so I don't remember. But anyway, you know, they, you pull on on the bit and bridle and, and they turn. But God's people are not like that. At least they shouldn't be. The Lord leads us. Look at the words. Verse 8. In instruction. He leads us in teaching. He tells us and shows us the way that we should go through his word. He gives us counsel. We're not to be like the horse which doesn't have understanding We're to be with understanding. We're to stay near him thoughtfully. Now, this is a good place for us to pause before we get to that last point in your notes. To pause here and talk about how Psalm 32 is both an invitation to you if you're not a Christian yet, and it's also a recurring cycle for longtime Christians. Did you wonder as I was going through this, wait a minute, is this for non-Christians or is this for Christians? And I've kept it vague on purpose. It's both. Psalm 32 is linear in one sense. It tells a conversion story, right? Denial, confession, forgiveness, restoration, and certain results of reconciliation. It's linear, but it's also circular. God's people frequently ride this Ferris wheel of guilt and grace and gratitude. The three sections of the Heidelberg Catechism are titled guilt, grace, and gratitude. We Christians sometimes veer off the prescribed path. We sometimes act like a dumb Mule that won't stay near him. And so the Christian life must keep owning sin, confessing sin, giving sin to God, and acknowledging his forgiveness in Christ and walking in that forgiveness. Christians should be growing in confession, not repression of their sin. The fact that their sins are covered or buried shouldn't mean that they don't talk to God about their sin. They should acknowledge them more freely, all the more. We praise God for His conviction of our sin when we sin and we don't feel good about it. We praise Him for His hand being heavy upon our souls when we're not talking to Him about our waywardness but trying to bury it. Thank God that your sin and the silence of your sin is painful. Like verses 3 and 4 talk about Proverbs 3 and Hebrews 12 say that his discipline is loving, it's fatherly, it's good, it's for our restoration. It's good that when instruction isn't working, he puts a bridle in our mouth and he pulls hard. And sometimes he knocks out a tooth. So we confess our sins to him instead. We keep repenting and we keep believing. The first of Martin Luther's 95 theses that he nailed to the church door on October 31st, 1517. The first of those 95 theses was that the whole of the Christian life is always one of repentance. We never stop. We don't begin to trust our own righteousness. Righteousness. We don't begin to ignore our unrighteousness. We own our sin. We confess it to Him. And by the way, confession isn't a new system of credit and demerits. We're not first saved by grace and then put on a performance treadmill to do our best, but then make up for the rest with real sad, heartbroken confession. No, confession's not penance. It's not scourging our souls to pay for our sins. So you better not trust in the consistency of your confessions because you've never had a day when you've confessed all your sins to God. Neither have I. You better not trust in the fervency of your confessions because we can never muster up enough tears or weeping or remorse to justify or fix our sins. No, confession, yes, is still painful, but it's for our good. It forces us to acknowledge, to agree with God, and to agree with God not only on the problem, but also the solution to remember once again that our sins go to him, and he can do something with them. Jesus died for them. That's always our hope. Our only hope. B.B. Warfield, more than 100 years ago, said this There is nothing in us or done by us at any stage of our earthly development because of which we are acceptable to God. We must always be acceptable for Christ's sake, or we can never be accepted at all. That's not true of us only when we first believe, it's true after we've believed. It will continue to be true as long as we live. Our need of Christ doesn't cease with our believing, nor does the nature of our relation to him or to God through him ever alter. No matter what our attainments and Christian graces or our achievements and behavior may be, it's always on his blood and righteousness alone that we can rest. Which means that Christian growth is a, a growing low, isn't it? doesn't feel like we're getting holier because we see more of our sin all the time. As we see more of our sin, we feel broken. We further sense our need and and hence we grow in humility but we don't feel like we do because we see our pride more all the time. But we grow in our thankfulness for his grace because we see it. We see its need daily. So how is your... Confidence in the gospel? How's your assurance of his love? Do you feel loved by him? Maybe I should ask this when do you feel most loved by him? Well, if you're like me, unfortunately, you feel most loved by him when you're doing pretty well. You know, you're reading your Bible like you should, and prayer has been, well, a little bit better than nothing good and we pat ourselves in the back and feel his smile upon us and we don't feel loved by him when we have sin in fact sometimes we feel like we can't go to him with it we want to forget about it first hoping he'll forget about it somehow and then we'll just kind of carry on like that didn't happen no in the psalms in so many places in the bible They feel loved by God most when they know their need for forgiveness most. Their hope is not in themselves and their performance, but in his love. So Christian, keep coming to him. You can keep coming. You can come home again. Proverbs 24 says, the righteous man, he falls even seven times. And yet he keeps getting up, no matter how many times he falls. The gospel is for you. The gospel is for Christians too. All the more reason for this last result. A reconciliation results in peaceful pleasure and praise. Well, the wicked don't have this. Those who haven't come to know that forgiveness, they got many sorrows, verse 10 says, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. That's what righteous means, by the way, just those who trust, those who have no deceit, those who are honest with God and keep coming to Him with confession and faith. Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, O you righteous, declared righteous in Christ. Shout for joy, all you honest in heart before the Lord. Remember the woman who washed Jesus' feet with her hair and with expensive perfume was in Luke 7 Jesus said of her he who's been forgiven much loves much Christians should be growing and knowing their need for the Savior and growing and knowing the unshakable surety of our Savior and hence knowing we've been forgiven much and loving much May we never get used to the idea of being saved. Let us, like Malachi 4, know God's healing and go out leaping like calves from the stall. That's a happy calf. May we, like Ecclesiastes 9, say to each other, and the Lord, go then, eat your be- bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart for God has already approved your works in Jesus. He's approved them because of Jesus' works. Oh, the freeness of nothing to hide, that he knows the worst and he's buried it in the depths of the sea, that he remembers it no more, that he's turned his face away, that he's put our sins Far from us like the east is from the west. Praise him. Sing about this to him. Stir up your affections for him. Shout about it. His steadfast love surrounds those who trust him. Amen.